You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers, and natural monopoly. Welcome, dear listeners, to the 597th episode of the Renegade Economist, coming to you monthly from my beloved little home in Drummond in a beautiful quaint valley, trying to feel like uh, everything's going okay. <laughs> so this month we have economic reformer and investment banker James Murray on the show, and we're going to dig into this uh, COVID slash Delta variant and the various government responses that have happened around the planet so, James, uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Carl. I remember way back to 2002 or three, we met at the Sydney Social Forum where you were manning the attack stall. Now, this was a, a French group. So can you give us a bit of background? Yeah, it was an interesting um, group that uh, uh they, they, uh, their catch cry was democratizing finance and and saying that um, that the interests, uh, you know, the financial system should be run in the interests of the people rather than in its own interests. Uh, and uh, they took uh, they took an interest in in finance issues, and uh, it was quite an interesting group. If I remember correctly, attack was big on the Tobin tax concept. Uh, was that correct? Can you explain the Tobin tax? Yes, that's correct. A small tax on uh, speculation, basically. On uh, you know, the, the the catch cry was sand in the wheels of of, uh, of finance. Personally, I find it um, not a very contentious topic because uh, if you go back in history. You'd always pay various stamp duties on on uh, share trading, and uh, you know it was a very normal thing to do. And uh, all they were saying is that you know if we have a very small tax on uh, on foreign exchange transactions, it could slow the level of global uh, speculation and raise some money for uh, for good causes based on uh, the thinking of James Tobin, former Nobel Prize winner in economics, where, uh, yeah, that Tobin tax was seen to deter that sort of short-termism that uh, currency speculators were enjoying. My eyes were opened uh, by that attack campaign and the Tobin tax. In the end, though, I sort of felt that instead of encouraging uh, greater stability and deterring uh, speculation. It might affect the small players, but the large players could actually hold the currency for just a, a little bit longer, so they covered the tax. Yeah, I think they oversold the uh, they oversold it as a, a, a cure for all ills. Uh, however, it, it it you know it basically is just another tax, and um, it was implemented uh, in India on uh, on share trading. And the stockbrokers all uh, went out and protested before it was put in place, uh, saying it was going to ruin the market and everything would, you know, the world would come to the, come to an end. And uh, basically, it didn't. All that happened is daily turnover fell slightly, and they, the government raised money through the tax. It's you know nearly twenty years ago that uh, we, we've uh, been on this reform bandwagon, so it's great to have you on the show. And since that time, um, how has your uh, 
reform agenda changed and, you know, what have you sort of been focusing on? Well, many things really. You know, I was involved with the Jubilee campaign, uh, Drop the Debt for uh, the Third World Nations. Yeah, it's still still ongoing really, looking at third world debt. Uh, and then really we've also got, um, you know, first world debt is now growing at a, at a huge pace. It is. So tell us a bit more about the Jubilee campaign. It's been a while since I've stepped into that space, but, um, you know, uh, sort of orientated from uh, the teachings of the Bible where every 50 years debts would be dropped, chattel slaves would be freed, and lands would be returned to the Indigenous custodians. How has that campaign had a lot of profile with Bono and the like. Uh, there was quite a big sort of uh, momentum behind it. Um, where has it gone in the sort of post-GFC era? Went back, goes all the way back to uh, the Live Aid concerts, remember that, mm. with Africa, the raising money for... Bobby uh, Geldof. That's right. And they raised uh, a couple of hundred billion dollars and they thought they'd fixed it. Uh, and then someone explained to them that that sort of money actually gets paid back uh, from Africa to uh, the first world uh, on a weekly basis. And they realised that the issue was debt and that they had to tackle debt if they were going to make any headway in uh, poverty in the developing world. We're going to now focus on the COVID-19 conundrum and you know, I always knew that the numbers that have been thrown to, to save the global economy were immense, but I didn't know that the three times the amount was thrown at the global economy in just the first two months of COVID than during the entire global financial crisis. So that $10 trillion in economic stimulus uh, is is still filtering through our bank accounts and into uh, the economy. So uh, James Murray, uh, you know, for me, that that is just so incredible to think that uh, that amount of money was found so quickly. How have uh, national governments done this? Well, governments have always had the ability to print, uh, you know, effectively print money. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is more that they've actually kept away from that uh, sphere and that they've allowed private banks to print money for so long. Uh, private banks have basically through, you know, growing their lending uh, book have had a monopoly on the growth of money and uh, been able to charge interest on that. Whenever governments have tried to move in and do the same thing, uh, people have said, oh, it'll cause inflation. You can't do that. While at the same time completely ignoring any inflation that comes from private increases in the, in the credit supply. I think it's actually uh, quite normal that governments should return to this sphere and actually print money in the way that I think most people expect uh, the money supply has grown. Yeah, it's quite a handy tool to be able to... Uh take $1 of in deposits and turn that into uh, $9 or $10 of credit. Uh, that's the, the typical analysis of uh, fractional reserve deposits. But, uh, 
Yeah, this line of thinking you're talking about um, makes me uh, think about uh, modern monetary theory and uh, the growth in that particular economic movement. How does modern monetary theory define money creation? Well, I mean, it's you know, I, I can go through the 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 uh, mechanism that's used to you know to buy bonds and to get money into the economy, but you know, rather than overcomplicate it. I mean, it's simple. It's basically, uh, you know, the reserve banks of the various countries around the world printing money because that's effectively what they're doing. So the central banks buy the the paper. So the, the treasuries issue the paper, issue the um, the bonds, and the uh, the central banks buy those bonds with cash that they've invented. You know, they've just printed out of nothing, and that way that money then goes to the treasuries, and the treasury then spends it. They've been, you know, scared that there'd be huge inflation caused, but it hasn't been the case. I mean, you know, they started, uh, uh, although different central banks ebb and flow the amount of uh, of money that they produce. Overall, it's actually quite a steady trend. And I think I sent you a chart before of the global levels of QE. And if you go back to uh, two thousand and one, that was around, you know, a bit over two thousand uh, two trillion dollars. And now we're up over $20 trillion globally. QE has become the, the policy tool of choice for governments to bail out their economies following the global financial crisis. Uh, yeah, to hear that we've gone from 2 to $20 trillion, that is immense. You brought to my attention a, a very interesting review from the House of Lords regarding uh, the UK government's reliance on this quantitative easing program, uh, this this money printing agenda that uh, global governments have become more and more addicted to. Yes, the, uh, the Bank of England has uh, printed an extra, I think it's 900 billion pounds, 985 billion pounds. And the House of Lords, uh, I mean, the... the, the the QE is always advertised as a temporary measure, um, but I think people are starting to realise that this, you know, these amounts can never be paid back. They can never be unwound, and it's something that just has to go on, continue. Um, the House of Lords, uh, their question to the Bank of England was, uh, you know, it, what's the plan to taper off? this extra money printing, uh, or is it just going to continue on? Huge amount of uh, supposed productive um, activity going on in the economy. It's, I think it's 42% of GDP that the the federal, the Fed's balance sheet in America now accounts for uh, total GDP. So, you know, to say that we're not in a recession when so much money, cheap money is being uh, pushed through the economy um, sure, they can claim that, but at what cost to future generations? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's the thing is though, at zero interest rates, this money does cost nothing. You know what I mean? Like there is no interest payable on it. So, as interest rates have gone right down, this money is just being freely printed. It's not going to cost the government at those levels. Traditionally, the thing that would prevent you from doing this is if there was another currency out there that wasn't being printed or debased. So if you had another currency, you know, gold or whatever, then uh, or Bitcoin, some people are saying, um, then what you'd find is that currency that gets printed, uh, people would, would 
leave that and transfer into a currency that's not being uh, expanded so heavily with the uh, the view that that will be worth more in the future rather than the one that's just being printed, you know, willy-nilly. But what's happening is that all of the reserve banks are printing at the same rate. So you can't sort of jump from Japanese yen to British pounds or to US dollars because they're all being printed at the same rate. And he does get something published. He does get something broadcast. It's a th- You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist, and this week we're in discussion with James Murray, investment banker. So, James, uh, yeah, that is, uh, you know, the point. Uh, there's no uh, real valid alternative currency, and uh, the Bitcoin type movement, the blockchain type movement is uh, a very prominent, but also very volatile. And reading a, an article this week uh, by Martin Wolf in the Financial Times, I was alerted to the fact that there's something like 8,000 different blockchain type currencies that have evolved. And uh, is there going to be a time where uh, there's going to be some regulation of these currencies? We're all subject to legal constraints and uh, these alternatives such as cryptocurrencies or gold. I mean, in the past, uh, gold was outlawed in the US to privately hold gold. Uh, And the books, uh, the the laws are still on the books in Australia that the government can seize gold in Australia. So these supposed alternatives may not provide the same legal guarantees as uh, normal currencies. So ultimately, everyone is sort of, uh, you know, we're in the same boat and the QE is, uh, is debasing all the different currencies at the same rate. Mm. The, the final limitation, though, is whether this will cause inflation and whether, you know, you'll actually be able to buy anything with this currency that you have. And uh, so far, we've been quite lucky. We haven't seen ongoing inflation. We've seen what the, the Fed calls transitory inflation, which is, you know, cost, cost push inflation in various ways. But the problem with inflation is that it often doesn't occur straight away when the money is printed. It occurs when the money is spent. And what's happened now in the current economy versus the economy back in, uh, say, the Weimar Republic in Germany when they had hyperinflation, is that the economy, money doesn't circulate at the same velocity as it used to. In the old days when you printed a dollar, it would then go from person to person as they bought goods and services through the economy. Now what happens is any money that goes into the economy uh, basically very very quickly heads up to these large companies, you know, your, your Amazons, your Apples, and uh, these guys, they sit on the cash. So you find that money doesn't circulate in the same way that it used to. And this is a, a problem for governments in how to, to grow the economy, but also it provides with an opportunity because it means that they can print money and spend it where they want knowing that it's not going to cause inflation. It's just going to end up 
on the balance sheet of the 1% and, uh, and sit there. The problem is, though, is if they ever decide to spend that money. And if they do, then you could have a problem. So we're talking about companies like Apple with, uh, goodness me, how many billion dollars do they have? I think it's almost a trillion, yeah, isn't it? I was scared to say it, but it is incredible how much of a cash base they have ready to expand, ready to buy up any other competitors. Uh, so, yeah, that's interesting because you'd think in this digital age where, you know, you can flick money anywhere that the velocity of of cash would be increasing. But you're saying due to rising inequality, in effect, Many in the top 1% are sitting on large cash piles and because they've got so much cash that they can't invest in, uh, they can't put in bonds because the returns are too low, they're throwing in things like Bitcoin. We're seeing the art market, uh, you know, again uh, through the roof. And, of course, uh, good old real estate, uh, land prices have uh, shot up uh, harder and faster than anyone thought they would, but... uh, there was a fantastic graph in the Financial Times the other day uh, talking about housing markets shrugging off the pandemic. And we all think here in Australia that uh, property prices have increased astronomically. Well, we were actually 16th um, in terms of the global scale with Sweden, Denmark, Russia, and even the US uh, in the top four there. So, you know, uh, certainly uh, Russia and the US have had a harder time with COVID. But uh, thanks to all this money printing, um, thanks to the access to cheap cash, it really hasn't helped the poor. In a way, it's, it's assisted uh, the wealthy yet again. I mean, you will find a lot of the infrastructure spending that America's trying to do now that will uh, help, you know, uh, the whole country. Uh, uh, so, I mean, the government spending when it's targeted properly, can actually sort of, you know, lower unemployment and and, and help everyone. But ultimately, uh, these balances will end up with the, uh, you know, the super rich. And the question is, is what they're going to do with that money? You know, as long as they sit on it, uh, it's not really a problem. If they, uh, if they decide to spend it, then the question is, will the uh, productive ability of the economy be able to handle that and actually come up with the goods and services that they uh, that they ask for. That's uh, so counterintuitive, isn't it? We're now asking, pleading for the wealthy to keep sitting on their cash <laughs> and don't invest it, don't spend it, uh, just tread water. Well, you know, it, uh, burn it. <laughs> you know, if they, if if it if this uh, money that the government spends on you know productive. Uh, you know, things on education, health, etc. They spend it on those things. If that money all ends up in someone's bank account and they don't spend it, well, then that's great. You know, um, the problem is uh, when they decide to go out and spend it on, you know, rockets to Mars or whatever. Um, then suddenly, uh, that that expenditure will displace other productive projects in the economy. To think that uh, some 60% of this transitory inflation in the US was due to rising car prices thanks to the semiconductor sort of shortage. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's frustrating that uh, land prices still seem to be underrepresented in terms of inflation. 
But James Murray, uh, yeah, this this inflationary outlook it it could take us back, uh, you know, twenty thirty years to um, to what was experienced in the seventies, where uh, they had high inflation and uh, higher unemployment, the so called stagflation era. It seems though that market sentiment is that uh, we're invincible now, and there's still a strong belief uh, amongst the bulls that. Uh, everything will be okay once uh, we get vaccinated? Well, uh, there already is inflation appearing, um, a lot of inflation appearing in the economies. Um, the interesting thing to look at is food prices in the, uh, the developing countries. The food prices are going through the roof and because they spend a higher proportion of their income on food, uh, it's going to hit them uh, very hard. So... Uh, you know, countries like Brazil and China, et cetera, they, they, they're actually starting to experience real problems with food inflation. Um, so, you know, I think this, this money printing is actually going to have its initial impact there. Back to Australia to finish us off. Uh, our foreign debt's now $1.2 trillion. By the end of the decade, uh, COVID's projected to have added some $800 billion to this uh, net debt situation. The belief is that the economy can um, grow at a faster rate with this stimulus, and from that, uh, uh, the, the, the back-in-black uh, budget surplus may well be delivered and we can start paying off some of these debts. Just uh, the end of this financial year, one of the main support mechanisms for the banking industry was wound down and uh, that was the term funding facility administered by the RBA. And so, uh, yeah, you know, there's billions of dollars of uh, funding that were uh, supporting confidence within the banking system. Now that has disappeared, uh, are there any implications for the Australian economy we should keep an eye on? It hasn't completely disappeared. I mean, they had $200 billion uh, that they spent, but now they've uh, extended it by a further $100 billion and they're putting liquidity into the market at the rate of $4 billion a week, which is uh, 20% less than they were. So they're still supporting the market. Um, the problem is, is yeah, as soon as they stop doing this, uh, the market will, uh, <laughs> it won't grow. You know, it'll it'll fall. So um, they, it reminds me back to a few years ago, they, the, the Fed had the same situation where they tried to stop their money printing and uh, they had what was called the, the taper tantrum where the markets, the bond markets, uh, crashed as a result. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see whether any reserve bank can actually slow its uh, level of QE or whether it's uh, a one-way trip. Yeah, with, you know, property prices so high, it feels like uh, so much of uh, uh, the JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments went through to supporting, in the end, uh, rents, uh, mortgages, uh, supporting the property market. That kept uh, land values uh, rising upwards and onwards and as... Uh, generally the largest uh, asset component of any bank's uh, balance sheet, 
it, uh, I, you know, perhaps reduced the requirement for this uh, term funding facility. But, uh, yeah, that is uh, something, you know, where, you know, we're on this, uh, this giant roller coaster. It feels like uh, once a decade we've got this huge uh, challenge coming our way. We know the environment's coming down the pipeline. Uh, for Georgia's, we uh, are very interested in this 18.6-year um, uh, business cycle, which uh, looks set to um, come come uh, to a big uh, a fall, which seems to which it, which is forecast to finish in 2026, um, which may well coincide with more environmental crises. So, uh, yeah, how, how do governments try and um, avoid the 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 taper tantrums um, that? could pop up around the world is is there a way to uh, provide confidence to the investment community that um, they can survive without this easy cheap money the economic saying is there's no such thing as a free lunch and uh that's that's actually going to be the case i mean you know you can print all the money you want but unless the economy productive capacity the economy grows to match it uh, there'll be no uh, no bread to buy in the shops, you know. So although nominally everyone, uh, you know, at least in Australia, can see themselves as a property millionaire or a share millionaire, until they actually sell and get that money to a shop and actually get something with that money, uh, it's all theoretical. Mm, it is. Do you, do you feel like uh, this sort of uh, road to nowhere means that perhaps... Uh, uh a more ex- expansive uh, jubilee agenda is going to be necessary to reset the global economy? Yeah, I think there will have to be. Um, and it's interesting to see what the central banks are starting to position themselves uh, with their own cryptocurrencies. Uh, you might find that they actually do introduce these instead of uh, the existing currencies, and that will give them greater control over who spends what money where, um, government, you know, central bank uh, cryptocurrencies may actually give them not only the ability to tell who has what money, but actually to control who gets to spend uh, what money and when and where. How would they actually control it, though? Well, it's uh, in China. They've actually they're trialing their own currency um, and. They, it gives them the ability to actually see who's got what and where and when, and they can they can delete your account. They can they have complete control. Well, that's uh, that's one I'm sure would lead to revolutions on the street. Uh, I wonder how we'll go with that one. Uh, you know, I kind of feel like the whole Bitcoin story is really replacing one form of money changes, the old money, with the new form of money changes. Who uh, might think they're pretty smart now, but it's yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how these eight thousand different blockchain currencies compete with each other and. What ones are actually uh, have some sort of validity? Uh, it seems like a great speculative market, but uh, is it really worth thirty thousand, thirty thirty nine thousand US dollars? Uh, well, yeah, I mean that's just that's a determination that the market market will make. You know, there's a difference between uh, value and price. Price is just what someone's willing to pay for it today. 
James, so uh, from today's discussion, what sort of uh, takeaway message would you, you like to leave uh, fellow economic reformers? Well, I think we live in very interesting times. The amount of credit that's been pumped into the economy that is sitting in various accounts, it's, it's a very big threat to the, the global economy. It's like having a dam perched above a, a, a town full of water and, you know, if everything's fine but if that dam breaks, that liquidity will flow into the economy and, and cause uh, further distortions in the economy. So it's, I think this is a problem we haven't seen the last of. The $20 trillion question. Thanks, James. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, check out the show notes at prosper.org.au. Find me on Twitter at EarthSharing. Occasionally on Facebook uh, under the Prosper Australia banner. Yes, stay safe out there as we search for rational solutions to seemingly complex problems. <laughs>